0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and we're just going to read one verse this morning, verse number 13, a very short uh, verse here. Uh, while you're turning there, I'll give you a minute, and I just want to say, share something I think will be encouraging to you. I know it was encouraging to me, but uh, Timmy Bricky shared this morning that it's been two years today uh, that, that he's been sober and the lord saved him just a short time after that he started coming to church right about that same time and the, the lord saved him and uh i've been meaning to to bring this up anyway he just completed we do i have gone through with several people uh a lesson book just kind of basics of the faith uh and we started working through that shortly after the lord saved him and just completed that last week uh just going through some of the basic doctrines of of Christianity. And so it's just been an encouragement to, to see the Lord work in his life. And, uh, one of these days I'm going to have him share some of his testimony with you, some more of it. He shared his testimony when he got baptized, but, uh, there's more to the story. And I, I think everybody would, would appreciate that and would be encouraged by hearing that. So, uh, just wanted to share that with you this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 13. You shall not murder. You shall not Murder. Uh, we, we come to this command and I, I think sometimes we look at something like this and we think, okay, this is good. Uh, this is one that maybe we don't have too much of a problem with, but I, but I think it speaks more to us than we realize. And I think it speaks definitely more to our culture, uh, than perhaps we, we realize. When we stop and think about murder and sort of the history of, of murder, uh, we recognize that it goes all the way back to the very beginning. Uh when when Satan rebelled against God, uh, he immediately became murderous. In John 8:44, Jesus says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. We go on in the scriptural storyline, and we see that the very first man that was born uh, became a murderer. Cain killed his brother Abel. And it wasn't long until. Uh, as, as the population began to, to grow, uh, that men s- soon boasted of being killers. In, in Genesis 423, we see of, uh, of Lamech, uh, that, that he boasts, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. So men begin to boast in killing. And it isn't very much longer than that. In Genesis chapter 6, uh, that we see that, that the whole earth is filled with violence. Genesis six eleven says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And that really has been the case ever since sin entered the world. The earth is full of violence. If you stop and think about the history of humanity, uh, if, if you take a, a history course, basically you're studying the history of wars. I mean, there's, there's sort of politics and wars and, and that's kind of it. I mean, there's other dimensions to study in history for sure. Uh, the development of science and so forth. Uh, but, but so much of what we study in history classes is war because history is full of murder and killing. Violence has filled the earth. Well, what does this command? prohibit. I think we need to clarify that a, a bit. Uh, if you have the King James version, it, it says, and that really is the literal rend- rendering of it, do not kill. You shall not kill. Most modern translations translate it, do not murder. So there's a difference or a distinction between killing and murder. And I, what I would say is that either translation that we take, it, it, it requires some clarification. We have to read this command and really the broader context along with the rest of Scripture to see precisely what is meant uh, when it says do not kill or do not murder. First of all, we need to recognize that it is talking about taking human life. It's talking about taking human life. Uh, God permits and sometimes even commands the the killing of plant and and animal life. Uh, And it's interesting. I I, I wanted to say that because uh, there are so many sort of uh, people, and we, we do love the the earth that god gave us and we love uh the the creation we love the animals that god have given us but but there is a distinction between human beings created in the image of god and, and animals so he is talking about here killing uh, or taking of human life and and i think it's interesting too that increasingly in in our culture the more people are okay with killing human life the more they're concerned about not killing or harming animal life Things are being distorted all around us. All life should be respected for sure in degrees, but there's something unique about human life since it is, Genesis chapter 9 tells us, created in the image of God. The second clarification that we need to see here is that this is not talking about every kind of killing. It does not prohibit every kind of killing. Again, in Genesis 9-6, God institutes capital punishment. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And in Romans chapter 13, that we see the right... Uh, to carry out that execution is not given to vigilante groups, it's not given to individuals, but it is the power of the sword that is entrusted to government. You could read Romans chapter 13 for that. And so I would say this, I, I do believe, I do not believe rather, that capital punishment is required in every case, uh, every time someone is killed. God even showed, I mentioned Cain earlier, God showed mercy to Cain when he killed Abel. But but capital punishment is certainly permitted, and it does seem necessary and right in certain cases. We can look at, think about that by extension of that principle as well, Uh, the right to self-defense. If someone is seeking to kill me, I have a right then to defend myself uh, against such actions. Based on this, Christians have recognized and, and developed what is sometimes called just war theory. Uh, There there are even times uh, in which justice must be carried out, not just in the execution of a single individual, but by stopping evil forces and and entering into war. It's important then, one person says, it's important to note that the word in this command uh, to, to not kill is never used in the Bible for what happens when God puts someone to death or for death that occurs in wartime. It's never used in those two instances. God in the Old Covenant even commands His people to engage in war at certain times. And notably, when we come to the New Testament, uh, we see soldiers who are coming to Christ, and, and Christ, or we see another instance, John the Baptist, they, they don't say, hey, you've got to stop being a soldier. I mean, that stands in stark contrast to somebody like, like Zacchaeus, who must repent and turn from his extortion as a tax collector or the woman caught in adultery to whom Jesus says go and sin no more or the rich man who trusted in his wealth and Jesus says go and sell all that you have and give to the poor but when soldiers come to follow Christ Christ does not say you, you're in a murderous occupation and you must give up this and, and come and follow me he does not say that so we we recognize that, unfortunately, in a fallen world, uh, capital punishment and, and just wars are, are certainly just things that, that occur sometimes. So again, J. Duma says about this, the Sixth Commandment is speaking about a very specific kind of killing, one that does not serve society, but rather violates society. Let me give a couple of cautions here, though. Uh, it's easy for us when, whenever we begin to carve out exceptions, the way that sinful humanity works is that we begin to be able to very quickly justify all of our exceptions. Whatever I did, yes, that fits in the exception. So so yes, self-defense is is an exception to this, but we should not be people who are eager to take someone else's life, even in self-defense. We We should want to avoid that at, at all costs. Police and those who are carrying out and executing uh, justice, yes, they they have the right and, and, and that exception is there for them to take life in certain instances, but, but they too must be careful that they're not eager to do that. There are some times when wars are justifiable, but politicians need to recognize that it isn't just a matter of making the case to the public to justify the war, that they will have to stand before the Lord uh and, and the Lord is not going to be swayed uh by false intelligence and 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 by uh you know inaccurate estimates of of weapons of mass destruction and, and so forth and so on. They will have to give an account for the decisions that they make before the Lord. The second thing I would say about this, even as we talk about exceptions, is that we ought to leave room for mercy. Our administration of justice should not be without mercy. Just because we can justify the use of deadly force does not mean that it is the best option. Let me give you a third clarification as we're kind of defining what is what is prohibited here. And the third clarification is this, that it really is broader than murder. It's not all killing. There are some justifiable times uh, which human life can be taken in God's sight, but this is a broader prohibition than merely murder. At least the way that we tend to define it in our society. In our society, murder we think of oftentimes as being premeditated intentional killing of a person. And, and certainly that is off bounds by this. That is prohibited by this command. But there's also things that we call things like voluntary manslaughter. In that instance, there's no premeditation. Yet it is intentional. You get into a fight and, and you begin fighting someone and someone's life is, is taken. And then there's even involuntary manslaughter. There's no premeditation and not necessarily any intention. And yet a human life is wrongly taken. In all of those instances, those are things that are prohibited by this command. So if we're going to kind of summarize. What are we talking about here? This is how I would define what this command is talking about. What is prohibited any action that brings an unjust and untimely end to human life, whether it is a malicious act of intentional violence or a negligent act of recklessness and carelessness. So just break that down. It's any action that brings an unjust and untimely end to human life. And that can be a malicious intentional act of violence, or it can just be a negligent act of recklessness and carelessness. Secondly, then, this morning, how does this speak to our culture? I, I want to kind of zero in now. That's kind of broadly what we're talking about and defining what is prohibited, but but let's look at some specific instances of things that this would speak to in our culture. The first, com- this command prohibits clearly, is is abortion. Notice in that uh, definition that I gave, I said it's any action that brings an unjust and untimely. I started when I wrote that definition to write an illegal, uh, an, in, an illegal taking uh, of life. Uh, but the, the problem with that is, is that sometimes taking human life can be legal and, and yet be unjust. And that certainly is the case with abortion. In, in Nazi Germany, the unjust killing of millions of, of Jewish people was sanctioned by the government. It was technically legal, but it was in every way unjust and immoral. And so it is in our day. So it is in our day. It, it is legal. It, it's even mainstreamed. It's it's encouraged. And yet in God's sight, it is unjust and immoral in every way. In our, in our day, there is a holocaust that like the killing of Jews in Nazi Germany, is sanctioned by our government. Abortion has been legalized and mainstreamed, and yet it is a clear violation of God's law. Abortion is a heinous act that brings the unjust and untimely end to human life. And it is human life. Let's make no mistake about that. When I say that, that was part of the definition. It is the ending of human life that, that we talked about. And and unborn children, they, they do possess human life. They are a human life. For a long time, advocates of abortion have, and some of them still do, try try to argue that a fetus in a mother's womb is not really human life. It's just a clump of cells. Or that because this person or this, this fetus in, in the mother's womb, uh, isn't able to, to sustain its life, that, that it really doesn't possess personhood. But listen, it is clear. The science is clear. The, the, the baby in the mother's womb is a baby. It is a human life. There, there's brain function very early on. There's development of organs. And with the brain function uh, comes things like the, the sensation of pain and, and so forth. And of course, we could go back to Scripture in the Old Testament and we could see where, where God speaks of fetuses or embryos in the womb of the mother and speaks of them as having personhood. Jeremiah says, uh, in my mother's womb, you, you knit me together. And so Christians are are often wrongly said to be sort of on the wrong side of science. But this is one place, which I don't think we are, uh, but this is one place where secular people are clearly on the wrong side of science. We want to pretend as if this is not human life, when when by every definable marker it truly is. And secondly, the the second sort of rebuttal that I would give to that is that when we talk about the, the ability for... Uh, someone to be able to sustain their own life. What, What a horrendous argument. The fact that a child is dependent upon its mother means that she's denied the rights of personhood and her life can be ended. Is that really the kind of arguments that we need to be making? There's a helpful a uh, book that's been written and and uh I actually have not read the book but I've I've listened to this guy uh speak before and and he gives uh four things when we just stop and ask the question what is it about an embryo that makes it acceptable to kill? This is from Scott Klusendorf, and you can look him up. He's got stuff on YouTube. He's just written a book uh, sort of defending the, the pro-life position. But he but he asks the question, what is it about an embryo that makes it acceptable to kill? And you need to just stop and think about that. At one time, you were an embryo. You you were an embryo. What When was it acceptable to kill you? What's the difference between the you that you are now and the you that you were when you were an embryo or a fetus. He he questions and, and gives four possibilities. And you can remember it with the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D-D. First of all, size. Does size make a difference? Embryos are tiny. They're, they're, they're so small. Does that, does that mean that it's acceptable to kill them? Oh, he argues no. Some of us are bigger in different ways. Some of us are smaller, but but the size does not give personhood. What about L? The level of development. No, I've got a newborn baby that that is not very developed at all. And and yet that newborn baby has the rights of personhood. The level of development does not change a person from being a person to a non-person. What about environment? We all move around. We move to different places. We go different places. Does the fact that the baby is inside his or her mother's womb, does that mean that it's not a, a human life? A journey of seven inches miraculously changes this thing that's inside the mother's womb from a non-person to a person. Is that what makes the difference? No. What about D? The two Ds, their degree of dependency. Again, I've already dealt with that. Our newborn baby is in every way dependent upon us for her life, and yet that does not make her a non-person. Where this really leads us then, and this is where some people are going in our our culture, is this leaves us with just the most grotesque logic. I've read this before to you in in different venues, and I'm going to read it again. This is uh, from an article that was in the Atlantic magazine uh, entitled A Life Worth Sacrificing by Mary Elizabeth Williams. And uh, she basically affirms that, yes, what pro-life people are saying is true, that, that babies inside the womb, they are persons, they are, it is human life within the mother's womb, but it's a human life worth sacrificing. And so this is what she says, and this is a mainstream uh, journal. She says this, when when we, on the pro-choice side, get cagey around the life question, it makes us illogically contradictory. I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells and then a few years later were exultant over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby and this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over miscarriages. What's, what's the difference? Why can't we agree that how we felt about their pregnancies was vastly different But it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same. Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only if they're intended to be born. She goes on to say this, and it's part of the conclusion here. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the women in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside her. Always, so there is the fault line. There, there is really where the logical conclusion. When we see that yes, whatever is inside this mother is is a human life. Uh, for those who want to continue to maintain the right for abortion, this is this is the logical conclusion. It is a human life, but it's a life worth sacrificing. And, and notice, look how how the mother's rights are, are pitted against the rights of. The, the baby. The only difference is this is the, the mother's right to sort of the certain kind of life that she wants or the, her convenience or whatever it is. On this end, it's the, the right of this child to live. It's life. Those are not equal rights. She said here that the mother is the boss. She's the boss. And that's where she's wrong. And that's what would lead somebody to, to lead to this conclusion. She is not the boss. God is the Creator. He is the lawgiver, and He has commanded here, you shall not murder. This command also prohibits suicide our culture has has somehow made suicide into a noble act. And listen, we can sympathize if you have had a loved one or a family member who has committed suicide. I, I understand the difficulty there and, and I can understand uh, the, uh, to a degree wanting uh, to think about them in, in good ways and how we would approach that would, would certainly vary. But what, what we've got to be clear here is that it is not a noble thing. It is not a righteous act. It, it is not a noble choice. It is immoral it is a sin, and it is a breaking of this command. Why does our culture seem to think it's okay and to even sort of make it a noble thing? Well, again, it's because they've rejected God as the the lawgiver, right? Once you reject God as the universal lawgiver, then all you're left in terms of morality is just, well, I can't hurt someone else. And suicide doesn't seem to hurt someone else. It's just me and my body. It's my personal choice. And, and so I can make this decision and it'll be a morally okay choice. In some cases, it'll even be a noble choice. And, and, and that's all well and good. But there's two problems. First of all, on their own terms, on their own terms, it, it isn't true that it doesn't hurt anyone else. Yes, it does not necessarily hurt anyone else physically, but, but it certainly does impact the, the people that are around you, the people who love you, the people who care for you—it it does do damage. There, there, there is damage that is done to those. Who love you. One of, one of the things that's happening when a person commits suicide, they usually do that because there's some kind of weight. There's some th- kind of thing that they're struggling with and, and they don't want to struggle with that anymore. And so when you commit suicide, here's what you're doing. You're taking the weight off of yourself and saying, you know, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And I'm going to let you family members and friends, I'm going to let you carry the weight of that now. And so even on their own terms, we, we could say that suicide does adversely affect others. It is not a loving act toward your family members and those that care about you. But, but secondly, we can't leave it on those terms. We can't leave it on, uh, thinking about this in terms of there is no God and it's just about whether I hurt somebody or not. The reality is that there is a God who is a, a lawgiver and that suicide is, is really a sin against God. First of all, it's an attack or an assault on God's image. God has created human beings. Again, Genesis 9, 6, He's made us in His image. He's put His stamp upon us. And so any kind of murder, any kind of human uh, taking of human life is defacing and marring that image. And it doesn't matter if you're killing another person or you're killing yourself. It is an assault on God's image. It's also, secondly, an assault on God's authority. Listen, God is the one who's the creator. God is the sovereign one who providentially rules over your life. And and if there's something in your life that you're dealing with, God has allowed you to be in that place. Suicide is an attempt on your part to try to take that short circuit God's plan in your life. to to reject His authority and say, God, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like the suffering that's in my life. And and I'm going to take this back from You and I'm going to end my life. God is the one who has brought you to this place in your life and God is the one who, who maintains the right to bring your life to an end. Those are God's rights. And so, suicide is an assault on God's authority over you. Thirdly, this command prohibits euthanasia. This is simply another form of suicide, physician-assisted suicide. And uh, I think we just need to be clear here that this is not the same thing. When we talk about euthanasia, this is not the same thing as refusing life-saving measures. Sometimes people confuse the two and say, well, I don't... I don't want to be on a ventilator or I don't want to have all of these things done. And that that's certainly within, within our rights. There's nothing in scripture that would say you, you've got to go to all of the extreme measures uh, when you have some kind of terminal illness. That's not what we're talking about. The, the kind of thinking that we're talking about is, is bringing your life to an end. There's a big difference between ending treatment and ending your life. And one of the things that we need to see is that there's sort of an ethic that's underlying the the popularity and the rise in in this practice, euthanasia or physician assisted suicide. And it's a way of thinking that simply says this. If you're not useful to to society, if you are dependent on other people to help sustain your life, then your life is not valuable. It's the same mentality when we go back to the beginning of life. Well, these, these babies are dependent on their mothers and so their mothers get to, to make that decision. And now we come to the end of life with somebody sick or elderly and it's the same thing. These people are dependent. They're, they're dependent on their, other people to support their lives and so their lives are not valuable. But that is not true. Our, our ability to care for ourselves... Our ability to be useful in this world is not what gives life value. God's image being stamped on your soul is what gives your life value. And once again, it is God who makes the determination when to bring us into this world and when to take us out. One of the things, and this goes back to last week, but but part of what drives this is just simply uh, people who don't, you know, the Bible speaks in the last time there will be people without natural affection. People who don't care for the elderly. They don't care for mothers and fathers and, and grandparents. They don't love them as God has intended. And so they see these people as a burden to, to be gotten rid of as, as quickly as possible. We even have doctors. Again, physician-assisted suicide. We have doctors who, whose job is to be to, to save life. To help people. And now they're doing the exact opposite. Next, we see, I think that this command encourages careful action. This command encourages careful action. See, there's a positive to this. These were all sort of negative things, things that we are not to do. uh, But there's a positive side to it as well. Calvin says this. He says, hence, Passing on to the command itself, we are told that if we can do anything to preserve our neighbor's life, we must loyally strive to do so, whether by supplying whatever is needful, number one, or by number two, avoiding whatever is contrary to... To that, so so not only do we not take our neighbor's life, but there's a positive that we ought to work to preserve the life of our neighbor. If we understand uh, that that what is prohibited also implies a positive command as well, we are to work to preserve our neighbor's life, supplying whatever is needed, avoiding whatever is contrary to that. So let's take that second one first: avoiding whatever is contrary to preserving our our, our neighbor's life. Uh, this means, I think, that we, we need to be cautious in, in our actions. Now, I, I just want to say that our culture has kind of become a culture of safetyism. Uh, we go to ridiculous extremes, ridiculous measures sometimes per, to present, uh, prevent physical harm. And, and, and maybe there's a, a pit on that side that we need to avoid. Yet we do need to take care that we do not carelessly put people's lives in danger. Not only do we not take human life, but we should also behave in ways that protect and do not unnecessarily endanger human life as well. I I often will talk to my kids and and warn them about this because that it is life is so fragile, isn't it? And, And you can do something so quickly that seems that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, and it can end. In, in the death of someone. It can end in your own death or someone else's death. I read of a story not too long ago about some kids. Well, it didn't start out with that. It was in the newspaper that this woman was there at a park near Cincinnati and, and was taking graduation photos. Uh, and and this limb or this log fell off a cliff and, and killed this lady while she's taking graduation photos. And they didn't understand why that would happen. And as the story developed, there were, there were subsequent articles that came out, and come to find out that there were some children, young young uh, adults that were up there who were acting carelessly, recklessly. There was no malicious intent, but there was a log on this cliff, and they thought they thought it would be funny just to roll that off and let it fall down and scare these people who were below them. And it, it hit this woman and killed her. That kind of behavior is prohibited by this. We need to be careful and not careless when it comes to human life. I think this applies to, to employers. If you, if you have people working under you, uh, you should not be encouraging people to do something that could quickly end in, in their death. We, we have Jared here who this this is his profession, right? To, to work to help provide a safe environment. Uh, and sometimes it's easy, isn't it, at work to roll your eyes at safety guys? Especially if it's Jared, right? You, you roll your eyes. Oh, there are more, more policies, more procedures that we, and, and yet wasn't it just this past year that someone in one of the local plants was killed? That, this is serious. We need, we need to take, if we're obeying this command, uh, we, we need to treat life uh, with, with care. We need to do what we can to help preserve our neighbor's life. But this command also encourages life sustaining action. Again, Calvin says the second part of this, if we can do anything to preserve our neighbor's life, we must loyally strive to do so. The second thing that he said there was supplying whatever is needful, supplying whatever is needful. The Westminster catechism says this, the duties that this command requires. One is comforting and supporting the distressed. In the Heidelberg that Donnie read earlier, the Heidelberg Catechism, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? The answer is no. God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And one of the things that that says then is to protect him from harm as much as we can. Listen, what this means then, I think, if you have the power to help someone and to help sustain their life, you have an obligation to do so if people around us are dying uh, because of poverty, because of lack of nutrition, because of uh, improper health care, I think we bear some responsibility from this command to do what we can. We can't save everyone, right? We, we can't provide food for every person, but, but certainly there are people within our sphere of influences that we can do things that help their life flourish and help sustain their lives. I think these are some of the things that this command would have us to think about. Finally, this morning, we've got to ask the question because we've said that we're looking at each of these commands in light of Jesus Christ. So number three this morning, how does Jesus transform this command? How does Jesus transform this command? Do not murder. Well, first of all, we see that he clarifies and expounds the full extent of the command. Uh, Jesus always gives greater clarity. Uh, and, and, and his teaching, uh, and takes these commands further than perhaps uh, we would have thought. And, and that's what he does here. When we look to the teaching of Jesus, what we see is that Jesus, first of all, undercuts the behaviors that lead to murder, and then he goes beyond the actual act of murder to the source of the problem, our sinful hearts. So first of all, Jesus undercuts the behavior that leads to this in Matthew chapter five, where Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not murder. But I say to everyone who is angry with his brother, you will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother. So so now he's talking about our words here, right? Our our words, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so one of the things that we need to see here is that Jesus, that we ri- rid our speech of deadly words, violent and deadly behavior are so often precipitated by hateful and threatening words. You, you see, it's just a, it's a step down, down the same chain. It begins here and this is where it ends. And we say, we don't want to do this. And Jesus is saying, yeah, don't do that. But let's go all the way back here. Don't do this either. This leads to that, we need to get rid of, of deadly words from our speech. In our hatred and our anger, we often assault people with our words before assaulting them physically. The two things are the same and they only vary by degree. Secondly, we see that Jesus requires leaving vengeance to God. So, so what we're seeing here is that Jesus just undercuts some of the things that lead to, to murder. And so in, in Luke chapter six, verse 27, it says, do good to those who hate you. We, we think I've got to get even. I've got to take vengeance. But Jesus says, no, don't don't do that. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you to the one who strikes you on the cheek. You've got the right to self-defense. Oh, no, that's not what he says. Wait. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And Paul, based on the teaching of Jesus, says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And so Jesus just eliminates those things. The words that we say, our desire for vengeance, our desire to get even, Jesus just wipes those things off the table and says, let's just take those out as well. Secondly, we see in the teaching of Jesus that he gets to the source of the problem. We remember what Jesus says when he says in the book of Mark that it's from within, out of the heart of man, that murder comes. You see, if we want to get again, if we want to get rid of this action out here, we've got to, first of all, trace back and see some of these other actions. But then ultimately, we've got to trace it down to our heart because murder comes from within our hearts. And so Jesus points us back within in Matthew, chapter five, verse 21, he said, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment." And so Jesus, again, He spiritualizes it. He takes it to the heart. He says, look, you think you're doing pretty good because you haven't committed murder, but, but the issue is deeper than that. There, there's a seed of murder within your heart. There's something within you that if you allow it to fester and you allow it to grow, will blossom into abuse and, 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 and assault and ultimately murder. So He's saying we need to, we need to have our hearts changed. First John 3.15 says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Again, Calvin says about this, For although it is the hand that begets murder, the heart nevertheless conceives the deed when sullied by anger and hatred. Consider whether you can be angry with your brother without desiring to injure him. Can you? I don't feel like I've I've ever done that very well. Usually, with my anger comes thoughts of, I'd like to punch that guy in the nose, right? So that's what he's asking here. Consider whether you can be angry with your brother without desiring to injure him. He goes on to answer the question, and he calls your bluff. He says, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I think I can. He says, however much you pretend and try to be dishonest, to excuse, to escape, Hatred and anger can never be innocent of the wish to do harm. I think I would agree with him on that. And then we see that Jesus, not only does he call us to get rid of these things out of our heart, but then again, in a positive sense, he calls us to love all people. In Matthew 22, he, he says that loving your neighbor is sort of the sum of all of our obligation toward, toward other human beings, to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and and beyond that, he even goes a step further in Matthew chapter five, verses forty three through forty four. He says that you're to love your enemies. You've heard it said, "You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Uh, okay, yeah, we can. Most of us can do that if there's somebody that's good, you know, they're, they're they're from Hancock County. We love them. Yeah, they're they're part of our community. Oh, that's good. We we can love our our neighbor pretty well. But Jesus says here, I want to go even beyond that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as we look to what Jesus has taught here, then we step back and we see, first of all, kind of the, the immediate prohibitions and all that that speaks to our society. But then Jesus gets even deeper. He gets into our hearts He gets into our motivations and and he shows us that this command really speaks to us a a lot more fully than, than most of us recognize. So we could say this, the true fulfillment of this command in light of everything that Jesus says is that we rid ourselves of all hatred and instead maintain a heart of genuine love for all people. That's all. Rid yourself of all hatred and anger And instead, maintain a heart of genuine love for all people. That's a pretty high standard. Maybe you came here this morning and you think, oh yeah, we're doing murder today. I should not have any conviction, right? This should be pretty easy for me here. But when we see what Jesus teaches, we see that it really falls on each one of us. Every one of us ought to hear conviction when we hear the words of Jesus that we are to love our enemies. You might think, that's impossible. That might be what you're thinking here this morning. That, that's impossible. I, I don't think I could rid myself of all anger and hatred and, and instead maintain always a heart of genuine love for all people. Well, I would say you're right. It, it is impossible for sinful human beings like you and me apart from Christ. But what we need to see is that this is precisely what Jesus did. It's not impossible for all human beings. It's impossible for us sinful human beings. Jesus came and He took on humanity, but He lived a sinless and perfect life. Christ loved mankind enough that rather than seek to destroy or harm His enemies like like we so often do, He laid down His life for His enemies. You see, this is the ultimate fulfillment of this command. Jesus does it. He fulfills the the command. The Bible says in Romans chapter four that while we were yet enemies, while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. So here he is. He, He could come and take vengeance against his enemies. He could drop the hammer on us and he could even be justified in it. Instead of doing that, though, he lays down his own life. He sacrifices his life for us, while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodliness. Stop and think about the, the vast difference between you and, you and I and Christ. Man in his sinfulness takes the life of his enemies. Christ in his perfection gives his life for his enemies. What a savior we have. And I would encourage you to look to him this morning, I said a minute ago that this was impossible and we certainly need to to, to find forgiveness through Christ and the death that he offers uh, for that. But here's the other thing that that when you come to Christ and you put your faith in him, he begins to transform your heart. Remember, it gets back to the heart and and, and it's from our heart that these things come out. This anger and hatred spews out of a sinful, broken heart. But when you bring that to Christ and you put your faith in him, you believe in him. Not only does he deliver you from from all of your anger and hatred in terms of your guilt, but he also delivers you from, from the power that that hatred has within you. He changes your heart. If you have been a beneficiary of of such sacrificial love where Christ would lay down His life for you, His enemy, then you ought to respond by by loving your enemies. And in fact, Christ gives us, as God's people, Christ gives us the power to do that. He changes our heart. He enables us to love. Do you have a heart this morning that's been transformed by Christ? If not, I would encourage you to come to Christ, to believe in Him, to turn from your anger, to turn from your hatred, to to flee to Christ, to believe in Him, and to give Him your heart that He might transform it into a heart of love like His own. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. We are so grateful for Christ. We're so grateful to You, Lord, this morning that You loved us enough that You laid down the life of Your Son you sent your son that he might lay down his life for us. And God, what an astonishing thing to think about as we think about our own anger and hatred toward our enemies and those who have wronged us to think that you would give your son for the sake of your enemies. God, it's only by your grace that we're saved. We pray that for those of us who have tasted of that love, that that we would grow in it ourselves. We pray that through the working of your spirit through sanctification, we would become more loving in our lives. Lord, help us as your word tells us to put a put away all anger and wrath and malice and to love our enemies and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We pray this in in Christ's name. Amen.